and welcome to episode 319 of the Spitballing Pod. I'm Luke Byron, joined as always by Tom Kennett and Jack Harper. Plenty to get into this week. There was an away winner in the North London derby for the first time since 2014. The offside rule was changed again to suit Manchester United. <laughs> Liverpool lost 3-0 while Trossard was on the Eurostar to Belgium. Mikhailo Mudrik took off his Arsenal pyjamas and swapped them for silk ones as he agreed a £100 million Euro, sorry, moved to Chelsea. Graham Potter won a game of football. Francis Ngarni has been released from the UFC. John Jones is returning at heavyweight. Liam Smith looks to destabilise the Eubank gravy train. And the wildcard weekend lived up to its billing in the NFL. First question, though. Jack, how are you doing today? Uh, like 0.5 better. I mean, that loss to Fulham stung, but a 1-0 win at home against Palace. Mid-table clash of the Titans. I'll take it. I saw some of the time wasting from Kepa. That wasn't a fantastic look. Oh, it's a brilliant look. I absolutely love it. Um, get... Maybe against different opposition. No, no. So basically, Crystal Palace were time wasting from the, from when the whistle went. Because I watched the game. And we were getting more and more wound up with it. And then when we scored, we started time wasting. They took exception to it. And we're like, no, no. I don't know if you saw the kind of scuffle with Conor Gallagher where he's like pretending to be injured and falling around and like that's all born out of Crystal Palace trying to time waste themselves and then Kevin put the icing on the cake I just know they've not scored a goal since November the 2nd in the Premier League what us or Palace Palace and so you know feels like when you're spending 100 million a week maybe you have to rise above it a bit but hey Absolutely not. I'm here for it. Football purist. TK, uh, should we ask how you're doing? Let's just get through this, shall we? (laughs) Well, no news of the week today because we do have so much to get into. We'll be covering four sports across the duration of this episode. And we will start, of course, with the North London derby. Arsenal went eight points clear at the top of the Premier League after a dominant display against Tottenham. Arteta's side won 2-0 to increase their lead at the top to eight points with Manchester United to come at the Emirates this weekend. For the record, I did ask Sean to come on. (laughs) And he told me, look, I would love to, but something's actually just come up. (laughs) He did insist that he really wanted to come on. I would prefer if he just told you to fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) No, we've had... uh, some quite, I can't even think of the word. Uh, essentially, if you listen to the last North London Derby podcast, uh, from from my perspective, I'm hoping this sounds a lot different. <laughs> despite feeling maybe more smug. But we'll start with the lineups. Arsenal side, I think one of the few sides in the league, maybe like the polar opposite to Man City. I could ask both of you to name our starting lineup for this weekend and you could probably do it immediately Hmm. Spurs however they did have some injury concerns I thought it was maybe some kidology ahead of the derby because I mean Harry Kane's been told he'll never walk again and then an North London derby comes around and suddenly he's fit as a fiddle so I assumed Benton Kuliszewski all of these guys would be fit to play Kuliszewski did return Benton didn't make the squad Spurs gave um, Papimatar Saar his first start. He was, prefer- he was preferred to skip Ambisuma. 
they chose to stick with the 3-4-3 rather than the 3-5-2 they'd played earlier in the season at the Emirates. I was really surprised they didn't pack out that midfield more. I think when I spoke to Sean in the week, that's what he was hoping for. Sessegnon was also preferred to Perisic, um, likely to try and counter Saka's speed. TK, before we even get into the game, far less emotional, I would assume, than I was around 3.30 when the team came out yesterday. Did this change your view of the game at all? Or what were you thinking? Well, it's tricky anyway, because I, I fancied Arsenal, but I, obviously I do know the record with North London derbies and away from home. So you have to factor that in. But yeah, I thought you've got to pack out that midfield. It looked a glaring obvi- glaringly obvious before, during and after the game that they should have done it. So it's weird that a manager of Conte's pedigree wasn't able to figure it out. I thought the Sessegnon one was a weird choice. Um, only in that it's not like Perisic is slow. It's not like he's, no. with all due respect, sorry, Jack, but that's like Aspilicueta, where you'd be going, <laughs> okay, I don't really need him getting isolated by Saka. I think he's experienced enough to be able to deal with it, which obviously Sessignon isn't. And he's not slow either. Um, and I thought it was probably a bit unfair what they did with Saar throwing him in there. I thought that was probably a, a pretty brutal game to get thrown into. I did think with Sessignon, the speed obviously was a big thing. I think he's done okay against Saka previously in the time that if they have played together, there was something in my mind about it. Mm-hmm. And I seem to remember that he was very good in the game against Liverpool where Spurs fans were arguing he should have had a penalty in the first half. And he played well that day. That's from memory at least. Emerson against what played well against us though. You, gotta, you can't add to that in. I've consumed more Spurs content in the last 24 hours than any man should ever (laughs) have to go through. I mean, I sat through those two that I think are brothers that you see pop up because they film themselves in the stadium. I sat through one that thinks he's the biggest geezer you've ever seen. You had Dane Scarlett in his North London Derby 11. I've sat through all of them and their reactions to the goals in any time I've been feeling a bit down today, if I just remember those, it's given me a, a right pick-me-up. <laughs> uh, I asked Sean last week about the Spurs press because they were so passive in the game at the Emirates. I think, I mean, I was trying to get Alex to say that when we were doing the, it last time around and he was no-selling me. Um, I actually thought Spurs pressed quite well in the opening five minutes. <laughs> I, I think both Gabriel and Saliba were considered trigger points to move on to because they really did press them. And I actually thought Sessegnon moved on to Saka well in the first parts of the game. I am aware five, of the comparison, I guess. Five minutes is also five well, minutes. Yeah, remember two... Was it last season? Last season, I came on here and I said, you know, Arsenal started well against Chelsea in the Lukaku game. And then we looked and it was like seven minutes. <laughs> And it was 1-0. So I get there, there is a comparison there, but they, they were showing a lot more intensity than they had in the previous game, which I did think was the right move for them. But when you only have two midfielders and you have your wingbacks holding width, we're going to body you every single time. Yeah, Sakura Martinelli pinned Sessegnon and Doherty right from the get-go. And then Zinchenko and White become midfielders alongside Party. I don't need to go through our system again, but 
we effectively have five midfielders against your two then in that instance. And with only the slightest bit of disrespect intended, the technical level of White, Zinchenko, Party, Xhaka and Erdegaard in comparison to Hoiberg and Saar, it's just a no contest. Mm, yeah. And go on. Well, fortunately, they had ball playing Larice to relieve some of the pressure as well. But <laughs> that helps. <laughs> that, that, that's where we're on to next. And uh, I'll ask you, Jack, because Spurs, I did think were lively to start, as I said. And as we started to get into the game, Larice was just dawdling on the ball before trying to play it wide. He's closed down by Martinelli. It's pinched back by Martinelli eventually, gets it to Enketia, and he's smothered but can't finish. And all of the crowd and the feel of the game just flipped immediately to angst. Yeah. it's That's the problem. When you've got a goalkeeper that you don't fully trust, that you know, and it's he's done it in the last couple of games as well. He's thrown, thrown one in multiple times this season. And it just sets a tone knowing that, oh my God, if they get in the box, anything can happen. You don't have a solid pair of hands. You're just nervous. And I think he, that he's, genuinely turns like that moment there turned it in your favor to the point where I'm glad you said that I was, I was thinking this I thought am I overreacting to this but I thought Spurs visibly I thought looked more nervous after that first Larice one where he only just gets away with it yeah and and the stadium when you consider when you talk about the home advantage in North London derbies and the record that goes with it to hear White Hart Lane that quiet in a North London derby before they conceded the goal <laughs> was just insane yeah. And it was just nerves running through the team, into the crowd, and then back again. It was just the, the, the perfect loop of confidence-destroying <laughs> motion. Well, so much was said about this atmosphere at the end of last season, and it, it was an incredible atmosphere, obviously. Um, I do think maybe us being down to 10 men, no Thomas Party, Cedric and Rob Holding playing, had something to do with it, not just the crowd. <laughs> but every member of the crowd that was a Spurs fan went into that game with so much intensity yesterday and determined to make it an atmosphere that I don't know if they were too fired up and it just wasn't what they expected, what they got back from the crowd. And then Saka, for all, and we've done this conversation before, TK, he's not a step-overs, flicks-and-tricks winger. He is a very intelligent winger and he's coming close, I think, three, four times and then this one time he peels out wide, it's party has so much time on the ball and one pass between the lines and he's able to get to the byline. He zips it across goal. I've heard the expression, and I think you may have said it in the chat yesterday, hands like Chris Packets. <laughs> this is the first time <laughs> it genuinely does look like he has Chris Packett hands. Biscuit wrists. It's insane. Martin Tyler sounds like he's just let his dog put down, but we're 1-0 up. And if you watch it back, Larice is shouting at someone. I don't know who the <laughs> hell he's shouting at, and he's got some nerve if it's anyone. And I don't know how he's not had his head taken off. Whoever he's shouting at, it's got to be going straight back over to him. Eric Dyer looks like he's shouting at Longley as well, and I think, look, I know he's probably your mate, he's your captain, but come on. And that goal's not an isolated incident. As you've said, Jack, Larice was at fault for Arsenal's second goal at the Emirates earlier in the season. He fumbled that shot against Aston Villa on New Year's Day. I think I read earlier he's performing at three goals below the XG of what he should and shouldn't save. Wow. 
Jesus. And maybe an indictment. If if I said to you, and I think I know the answer here, Jack, would you swap him for Kepa? No, not right now. <laughs> and if I asked you that a season ago? Yeah, yeah I would. 100%. I would have swapped anyone for Kepa. He's, he's 36 years old. And for the last four years or whatever, he's been in the bracket of De Gea, hasn't he? Where it's like, look, this guy can't do anything with his feet, but he's a good enough shot stopper that we can make up for it. Yeah. He's going the way a 36-year-old should go. His saves and his every stat that you can ask for are just plummeting, and they're plummeting at speed. I think a little bit like um, with United, though, I think Spurs have gone into each sort of window thinking, look, he's on the decline, but we've got other bigger priorities, and now suddenly this is a priority. You look at it, it's staring you in the <laughs> face because his decline, like it, you said, is becoming sharp this year, I think. It's going to be interesting if those two are competing for the same keepers because this really, this summer was Spurs' opportunity mm. with Arsenal and Manchester United outside the Champions League again. They have Conte there who players are supposed to want to go and play for and they bring in like a Conference League window, which we'll get onto. Arsenal from there, it's it's like a testimonial match. <laughs> the way the ball's being sprayed around, the time on the ball, the calmness. I text you on Friday or Saturday, I think, TK, looking for some comfort. <laughs> and I said, look, if you were Arteta here, how would you approach this game? Would you approach it, actually, it would have been after the City game. Yeah. Would you approach it in the sense of, look, remember what happened last season, this is a North London derby, we got the chance to go eight points clear here. Or do you approach it of, it's any other game. This is any other game. And you said the latter. And it looked like that was how we were playing it. Yeah, you just, especially in that first half, we've all just picked up where you left off. Um, in terms of how you've been playing, you didn't make it too big a thing. I, I said I said in that message to you that I think you've made North London derbies and games against Man United too big previously. Um, if you treat them as you've done for the rest of the games, then Arsenal have been the best team in the league this year. So, stands to reason you'll beat Spurs and in that first half it was I mean the levels between the two it was scary Saka picks the ball up again for the second goal drives down the right hand side finds Erdegaard who's had a shot saved moments before I would say similar position similar amounts of time and a similar shot low and hard this time flies into the bottom corner his eighth goal of the season you two will ask you. Good goal or are we questioning Larice here as well? Um, no, nah, it's a good goal for me. It's right in the corner. Um, Keeper may have got closer to it, but I still don't think he saves it, personally. What do you reckon, TK? <laughs> yeah, no, those ones are awkward. And I think they, they look bad for the keeper because it almost looks like by the end of it, it's almost trickling in because it's low. It's not like the cleanest of clean strikes, but it's still a good strike. And I just think the way it skips off the turf away from as well, I think if that's a different keeper who we're not having question marks over already, I don't think we'd question it too much. But I think because it's here and we're maybe looking into it a bit more. To, give that, is, to put it in perspective, you think, I don't know, like when you go down and do like football training, uh, if you play like 11 side and 11 side goals, on the TV camera, it looks miles out. But actually, in real life, it's not that far. Yeah, that's and fair. In the reaction time, you're still looking at like 
under two seconds reaction time from when the ball is hit to when it hits the back of the net. So if you're if it's right in the corner and you're stood in the centre of the goal or slightly to the right if you're missighted, you've got no chance. So it is the bigger issue that he pushes the team forward, he then boots the ball out to no one in particular. Arsenal win one header with Saliba, I believe it is. And there's suddenly this huge gap in the middle of the field where everyone has just moved forward for what Larissa telling he's going to do. And no one's able to get back in in time. As we say, there's only two midfielders there trying to cover. I actually thought Saar was one of their better players. And maybe you do that sometimes when it's a fresh player, you have less expectation. In terms of getting around, putting his head up, Spurs, they would get the ball back and then it would be a misplaced pass or they would try and do something too quick when it was only one goal in it. They they looked rattled and Arsenal maybe didn't take as much advantage as they should have. Yeah, it's true because obviously Kane has that chance right at the end of the half where if he'd yeah. put that in, you'd have gone, we've just had a half where we've blown them away and yet it's 2-1 and we're probably going to get a bit nervous now. Is, and recency bias may come into this. Is Odegaard the best player in the league this season or is it too tough to take that from Haaland? I would go with him at the minute. but I, I, th- I think if you're measuring it on the effectiveness on like the team and how valuable it is in the, in the game situation, because I know Haaland's got 30 goals, so you can't say anything about him bad, uh, bad about him at all. Um, but a lot more happens and he does rely on someone else putting it on the plate for him or creating a chance for him. Whereas Udegaard seems to affect games more than Haaland, yeah. if, you know, if that well, makes sense. Well, he's he's more of a, what you'd say, a modern 10. It, it, it drives me crazy when I hear the pundits say an Arsenal set up with a 10 because they don't. Udegaard is level on the field with Xhaka and he's able to dictate the play from there because he is slightly more in field. Spurs... The way Jack and Party plays does allow him to, though, don't they? Like, not yeah. many teams would be able to do that. No. Well, they had a few chances in the first half. Um, the reverse pass from Sassanyon to Sun, that Sun maybe should have lifted it more, but he's not in form. The Kane header you've referenced. And Martin Tyler nearly gave me a heart attack <laughs> when he said that Spurs had a penalty. And I was in sheer disbelief at what I'd seen, but at the same time, I thought, well, of course, like this was obviously <laughs> going to happen. And when I saw the replay again, I was just incensed, like past the point where you're shouting at the TV, where it's just a stunned, like uh, uh, silence. And <laughs> I don't know if they realized sooner because they let that go on for a long time before they eventually told me it was half time. And then I think he even said, well, that doesn't mean they can't check this. And I thought, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> he just wants to ruin your whole half time. Yeah. I don't know what Arteta said at halftime. I can't imagine he told us to sit off, but he probably did make the team aware that Spurs wouldn't be as passive in the second half. If if we're blaming Lloris for the Spurs' defeat, Ramsdale, on the other hand, was incredible. I think this is the best game he's ever had in an Arsenal shirt, maybe his best game ever. <laughs> I think he takes enough stick when he makes an error that it was good to see him get his props here because you couldn't have argued if even two of those had found the back of the net. 
I thought if you know if we said about how Larice's performance affected Spurs, I think Ramsdale kind of lift, lifted Arsenal as well. I think he kind of imposed his personality on it a lot more. Obviously, he rattled the fans pretty well, um, but I think there's a, <laughs> there's a calmness and a coolness to him alongside that. Where in this supposedly really heated game, you see him acting like he is, and I think Arsenal fans, Arsenal players, have just complete confidence in him. Well, in contrast, and I think we've spoken about it before. Dean Henderson, <laughs> another England goalkeeper, he makes that save that Ramsdale makes on Sessegnon. He's on the halfway line, fist pumping. <laughs> and Ramsdale, every time I was looking for him, because he, one of the tags you would maybe put on him is that he does need to be involved. There was a thing with the in the Newcastle game when he was jumping up and down on the corners. Like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> Just calm down a bit. <laughs> And whatever was said pre-game clearly got into the back of his mind. I think there was one where he took a bit too long to kick it after he'd not touched it for a while in the first half and they had a chance from it. But that was really the only complaint I could make. They didn't really have many clear-cut chances after the Sessegnon shot. So for as much as it felt like they had the best of the second half, that was really the only one because... The Kuliszewski ones where he's cutting inside, fair enough. But I think we'd have been happy if that's where he's shooting from. Kane has the one that's at a good height for him. Sessegnon one is a very good save with his leg outstretched. And the Richarlison one, anytime he looked like he was going to get close, he miscontrolled it. And in the end, it's quite a tame shot into Ramsdale. I think just by virtue of not being as terrible as they were in the first half, there's a feeling that yeah. Spurs had a really good second half. I think they probably didn't. I think probably the opening 15 of the second half, I thought they looked like they were turning the screw a bit. And then after that, it kind of looked to me like they fired the last bullet. They didn't have a lot of ideas. Well, I think I said on it, after we beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, sorry to bring that back up, Jack, but me. I was nervous sorry. for the 90 minutes. And then the second the game ended, I was like, when I look back now, <laughs> what was I really worried about? Yeah. And I don't quite feel like that with this one, but I do feel like everything was so heightened because I was just convinced that if they get one back, this place is going to turn and it's going to be insane in there. And it just felt like the script had been written, like something was going to happen. I know Harry Kane had a T-shirt on under his shirt yesterday, ready for the record. <laughs> I know he had to have had something. <laughs> and Gabrielle and Saliba were incredible. I know Gabriel takes some flack. I actually think he's been our best centre-back this season. He had the, what, three-game spell? Where there's the Leeds game, the Fulham game, and there was something else where he makes... And Tottenham, where he makes a mistake for their goal. Other than that, I think he's been better than Saliba. I think his aggression is perfect for Harry Kane. We seem to make a change because Kane was getting so much time in the early stages where he was getting on the ball and he was turning. And Gabriel just got that tiny bit closer to him and he was just reading it and he was nipping in front of him three, four times. And the man I really want to speak about, Zinchenko. <laughs> it, recency bias, mate. Is it recent to say he might have been our best summer signing? The guy is incredible. Hmm. Hmm. His technical level is as close to Erdegaard as anyone in our team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. The control that he dictates from left back is the most I've seen from a fullback, other than Trent, maybe, and it's in a very different manner. Mm. The issues that he may have defensively 
are counteracted by what he does moving forward. I, I've never felt as comfortable watching an Arsenal team as I have when he's playing. And for someone that's seen as a bit flimsy, he won 75% of his aerial duels all season. He he didn't lose a single aerial duel yesterday. And I think in the first minute of the game, Gary Neville said, oh, we can see the physicality difference between him and Kuliszewski. He won it in the air every time. And the ball is going to go over him sometimes, but I thought he dealt with it so well. And it was maybe his best game for us as well. Sometimes too comfortable it was, with the way he runs inside yeah. and drifts past players. It was perfect for him, wasn't it? Because of the, the way they set up that midfield, he could just come inside every time. And which already was a situation where you had overload. He was coming in to make it an even bigger one. And for all, I do think Kuliszewski's got certain qualities and maybe there were some fitness issues as well. I don't think he's the sort of player that's going to give Zinchenko huge amounts of problems, only in that he's not the most direct. And so sometimes I think, say if you'd have someone quick and more direct down that side who's just going to stick out there, it's going to be harder for Zinchenko sometimes to come inside. He's going to have to second-guess himself a bit. As it was in this game, like you say, he didn't have to. It was easy for him. I'm almost certain Rashford plays on the right-hand side on Sunday. And the thing is, that in theory makes sense because of what I've just said, but then Rashford has rarely looked as good on the right, has he? So it's an interesting... Mm. Would you change it with the way Rashford is playing at the minute? It's an interesting one. Other things just to tick off. Party's shot. If that goes in, that's maybe the best goal I've ever seen live. <laughs> I would have been on the moon. There's <laughs> a ping. Uh, I was laughed at on here in maybe the first fortnight of the season when I said our defence was better than Liverpool's. Well, I <laughs> want to question if it's too early to say I was right or not. <laughs> it's, not it's not much of a contest at the minute, is it? I did say Unman City as well, but even with them, I mean, Newcastle's the debate at the moment, mm. which is a, a weird one. But we also have the highest line in the league. It's just frightening. The shit I've seen from Martinelli, I was unfamiliar with his game, let me tell you. <laughs> the control with the back, like he's just discovered he's Brazilian. The handshake he's offering Richarlison at 2-0 is... <laughs> I could not believe when I saw that back. He's wrapping a scarf around the spider cam in the Spurs stadium at the end of the game. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. I mean, the rest, a proper centre-forward performance from Eddie. Other than the goal, I thought he was great. First half in particular with his running. He was really good. I mean, that's what, when you said about Zinchenko being your best summer signing, ironically, the way has played in Hazy's absence <laughs> has made me think you might be right that well, Hazy's was really good, but Nketiah's doing the job just as well. So maybe it's just the team is just functioning that well at the minute. The the only player I was quite disappointed in was Tierney. I thought he was horrendous. I thought he was really, really bad. I don't think he completed a pass. I don't think he was getting in and around and helping Zinchenko out in the way he was brought on to do. I understand he was playing out of position, but it was... He's essentially, I think, brought on to do what we ask El Nenny to do, and it's just make a nuisance of yourself. And he just looked like he didn't know where he was. It, it, I wouldn't be surprised if he's moved on in the summer, to be honest. He used to be your boy as well. I mean, he's, he still is. I think he's a brilliant player, but I don't think we have the system for it anymore. It's, it's cruel as well, because he's a very good player, but this technical level of Zinchenko means when he comes on, it just doesn't look the same, does it? I do wonder, is he a player that can come on as a sub? Because 
there's been a few times this year where he's come on and, you know, you said fans around you haven't exactly been happy and he hasn't yeah. played well. Whereas I do think sometimes when he starts, he does look more assured. So maybe you just can't get up to the pace of the game as well. The, the one I thought he was good in was uh, Liverpool when he came on as a sub and he did make a difference there. Yeah, Other than true. That, he, he's, he's been really bad. A couple of on Spurs before we move on. Um, how much of this loss is on Conte? Massively for me. Massively. I think this is a really bad indictment on him. Because, yes, they have some injuries. You've still got Harry Kane... You've still got Son, you've still got Richarlison. I know the blokes hasn't scored a goal yet. But this it must be the way he's setting them up because these players then I don't think they're lazy. It must be from like a game plan perspective. I don't know if you match it a day, maybe you didn't want to watch it yesterday. Danny Murphy was saying, I actually think it's an indictment on some of these players that they aren't taking it upon themselves in the middle of the game to disobey the manager because you can't just allow this game to go past you in the way that it is. Like, you have to try and do something. You have to have a bit of respect for yourself. It was, I mean, it's just a Conte trademark. He's just so egotistical that when he doesn't get his way, he just wants to bring everyone down with him. It's mental. Because Yet, your, your teams weren't like that, though, were they? There, there wasn't a lack of drive in the teams that you... I remember them being, if if not fast and incisive, I remember there being a certain bit of zip to them. He never changed the system. And when it started going wrong in his second season, when he did throw the toys out of the pram, um, there was the tactic which they seemed to use with Kane, which is they set up in exactly the same way as Spurs do. And it was play it into the feet of Kane with his back just, just past the halfway line, try and get a flick on. And then build from the wide positions. So yeah. you've drawn the centre backs out and you've pushed forward with the attacking wingers. And then it leaves a massive amount of space for someone to either stretch the line in sun or Harry Kane then arrives late. And that's all they do. And he will not deviate from that. And he won't even bring subs on. I think he waits until like this, what, the 78th minute to I mean, bring subs on? The, the subs. Yeah, you can, I mean, you can see the mind frame I was in. I was convinced Richarlison was scoring because I'd said <laughs> so much about him not having a Premier League goal. <laughs> Harry Kane cannot be both creator and scorer for Tottenham. No. And yesterday was the first time I've looked at it because I'm sure we've all seen the links where I thought, United would be better off turning their nose up at you and saying it's not worth it for a season or two for the money it's going to cost. Hmm. He... He... he he didn't look good. Um, Son, I mean, at what point do we say that he's shot to bits? Yeah, it it is concerning with him. How long do you go? How long is form? Um, but again, I do, I do think that's partly on the manager. They've, you've got to get, especially a home game, your team's got to be 20 yards further up the pitch than they were. When you look at them at times, and I know they were under the caution that first half, but I just remember one point where it became really obvious to me and this is partly on the player as well, but Kane found himself tracking back into like a left-back role and tried yeah. to ping the ball out and couldn't make a pass because no one else was up there. And you're like, this team is just penned in. And I know part of it was how good Arsenal were, but you've got to do something to get out. And As a wider point, I tend to actually agree with Danny Murphy where I do think we reduce the players too much to, oh, well, the manager's telling him to do this. Well, these are professional players at the highest level. They've got enough initiative to be able to go beyond that. But this is like a wider trend with Spurs, where they are too slow to start games and it's hard to then get back into it. 
And that must be either by design by the manager that you're going to sit back or like we said with him and the Jose, where even if he's not telling you to do this, there's something going on with the manager where he's not instilling confidence that you can get on the front foot and go for it. Yeah. And that Spurs is, when you look at the quality they've got, they've got better quality in attack than they have in defence. And not a team that's got elite defenders. In theory, with Kane and Sutton, they should have the two best attacking players on that pitch. I, I say in yeah. theory because I think a few Arsenal players have put themselves in contention on that. But just his, over the last few years, you would say they're the standout players that are supposed to be on that pitch. And you're not getting anything from them. I just think a lot of the criticism we applied to Jose by the end of Spurs, I think is rearing its head again under Conte. Well, the only move they seem to be linked with in January is a move for Pedro Porro, who's at Sporting Lisbon to confirm. The commentators yesterday were said he was at Porto and they made a Pedro Porro of Porto joke, which... Didn't work, so they had the wrong club. Forty-five million he's going to cost, whether it's completely upfront or whether they can negotiate around the release clause, which it seems a bit like an Enzo Fernandez one, where they're telling Chelsea it's the release clause or nothing, and a week later Chelsea are perplexed that they're saying release clause or nothing. <laughs> Is a right back really like Doherty? Spurs fans don't like him. <laughs> There are worse right-backs than him out there. He's a serviceable Premier League right-back, I would say. I don't think right-back is their biggest point of concern. If anything, you look at someone like Livakovic, who I'm becoming his agent at this point, <laughs> and you, well, you look at Larice in goal, because the way Spurs defend should, if anything, cover up the inefficiencies of Larice, and he should be sound, but he's not. You can look at someone like uh, Unahi who's been linked for about £15 million and just someone who's going to get on the ball and show uh, a little bit of technique. Um, although I'd maybe question if he's a bit lightweight. It's it's just looking rough for them at a point when they were supposed to kick on and leave the rest of us behind. Chelsea were in trouble. Arsenal, I mean, Gary Neville said if we didn't get top four this season, then... That was it. We're going to be looking out on the outside for another five years. I don't know what they do from here. I'm not necessarily sure Poch is the answer where it does look like that's going to be who they turn back to. I mean, the best thing for us is if Conte signs a new deal. I'll be over the moon if he signs a new deal. And the last thing on this game, Matt Fug at the end kicking Ramsdale. <laughs> I loved every bit of that Ramsdale interview where he said, they've been giving it to me all game. I gave them a bit back. And then it's not even like it's a big, bold bloke in the front row saying, come on, me and you, let's have it here. (laughs) It's a guy jumping up when he's got his back turned and trying to put a toe in his back. (laughs) Is that worth it? No, no, it's not, is it? The fact that the the ban... That comes with that, and the fact that that's technically assault, and it's on 4K mm, cameras. Yeah. Like that's it's encouraging onto a pitch. It's assault. I, what was it? Nothing's worth that. Oh, it, that's just mental to me. The Ramsdale one as well, and Richarlison seems to miraculously be escaping this criticism because he flares this up. Ramsdale. Kisses the badge, taps it, and he laughs. And he's laughing in Richarlison's face as he takes that last goal kick. And then he goes over to get his water bottle. And he's already been pushed in the face by Richarlison, and that's when he gets pinged. This is 
in Richarlison, this is the bloke who's doing keep you ups in the middle of the game against Man United. Mm. This is they've got Romero who's screaming in Harry Maguire's face when he's on the deck. Don't talk to us about having a bit of respect for the fans and having a bit of respect for the players you're on there for. Fist pumping is a bit too far, supposedly. As we always say when it comes to celebrations, if you don't like it, don't let them score. Don't let them win. Don't let them <laughs> do this. Like It just made them look even more pathetic than they were pre-game. We remember that game against Chelsea where they did their best to take over from... Uh, Leicester winning the league by kicking Chelsea off the field. They've got a real habit of doing this. Vile, vile, vile bunch. And I'm sure they'll get away with it again. Kind of does add to the magic, though, watching them lose their rag. Does, it is kind of the cherry on the icing on the cake. It, it does. And that after the game yesterday, I think we would have celebrated that, no doubt. I think the manner of the celebration was entirely because of what they just fueled, It was, we're going to take our frustrations yeah. out some way and we're going to now dance all over your turf. Well, I, I do wonder about just people in general. Like, I think I've said it before, but I thought we were all sort of like signed up to like agreement that basically if we win, we're going to laugh at you. You win, you're going to laugh at us. Yeah. And it's not going to be fun. You're going to have to take your medicine. But for some reason it seems to be, we want to be able to laugh at you, but no one... Turns the gun on us. That's not really how it works. Richarlison spoke after the game and he said he didn't like some of the antics by Martinelli. He went down too easily. Some nerve again. (laughs) He said he didn't like the fact that after a handshake in the middle of the game when we're at war. And then he said that Ramsdale was being disrespectful, fist pumping towards their fans and he was always going to stand up for them. Look, maybe if you're a £60 million signing and you've not scored a goal, you have to take some matters into your own hands. But... It, it was an awful look. And then I thought there was going to be some pushback for the Arsenal celebrations. Seems only Richard Keyes was really that concerned. <laughs> As a shocker. He actually said, if we have a look at this, I think Arteta's the man to blame. <laughs> and he said, like an evil villain, he said, and oh God, I've been fearing this will happen. I've been fearing this was going to spill over at some point. <laughs> I saw someone say earlier, I don't know what Arteta has done to him. It is odd. I think there's, there's, there's the the tweet started with when he's waxing his hands <laughs> and then I lost it. I, I can't even remember the rest of the tweet. The thing with Keyes is that once he's seen that going in Arteta, Arteta gets some sort of reaction, he's just going to carry on, isn't he? So. Yeah. Can can we drop the Romero being one of the best thing best defenders in the league now as well because how that bloke stayed on the pitch yesterday was mental the reputation he has the player he is is the reputation that Gabriel has because there are levels between those two and it's the Brazilian that's the better player and I'm grateful we don't have to play them again because I can say this with no repercussions Um, but we'll move on we'll come back to the Manchester derby because I know Jack's time is limited as Arsenal actually prepared to face Tottenham the 100 million euro winger they chased was being paraded at Stamford Bridge now Chelsea have completed the signing of Mikola Mudrik eight and a half year contract with the Stamford Bridge side (laughs) Jack this news broke 
Saturday afternoon. And just to run through the, the general details, there's a very stark contrast between Arsenal and Chelsea's negotiating style. Um, Arsenal had spent weeks talking with Shakhtar Donetsk. I mean, very. I've, I, this is the most public transfer saga I can remember in quite some time. Chelsea eventually thrashed out a deal in a matter of hours. They flew to Poland, we believe, to sit down with the officials. Arsenal, if anything, supposedly see their approach as diligent and methodical and how it should be frustrating for everyone involved, the fans especially. Chelsea essentially say, you tell us what you want and we'll tell you whether we're going to pay it or not. Yeah. Um, I'll confess, I've never seen him play. I've, I haven't watched any of these compilation videos on YouTube. Neither's Luke, don't worry. He doesn't I've know ne- much about it. I can, send, I can send you a few good ones. Yeah. I've never seen him kick a ball. Um, and yeah, I mean, the only consolation to this for me is that it's pissed Arsenal fans off. But I know for a fact that most Arsenal fans that are pissed off have never seen him play either. So, so it just seems like an inordinate amount of money. I've seen him in the, the Champions League. And unfortunately, this isn't the first time I've become wedded to a transfer target. Um, Husam Awa stings, actually, looking back <laughs> on that one. And mainly, again, because of a great compilation. Um, at one stage, Arsenal, we, we know now, hope to sign both Mudrick and Yao Felix in the window. <laughs> Yao Felix, they said, we aren't going to spend 11 million plus wages and I have no buy option. And look, we don't know if the clubs knew he was going to sign a new contract immediately as well. The Yao Felix one doesn't come off. He goes to Chelsea and the reports say that Arsenal can deal with this. Mudrick's the guy they want. Mudrick has since said this is a huge club, fantastic league, a very attractive project for me, which I tweeted this uh, beforehand saying he's not going to tell you about the club. He's definitely going to tell you about playing in the league. Arsenal never had a bid accepted here is the big thing. And ultimately it came down to, do I want to stay at Shakhtar Donetsk? Do I want to play for Chelsea? I think we're going to see a lot of fishy things come out about this deal. We've already seen that the money is going straight to the war in Ukraine and it's going to be funding the military. I can't win with you, man. It's (laughs) either Roman funding one side, now we're funding the other side. I mean, crazy. Maybe don't fund any side of a war. (laughs) Might be a good starting point. We're just trying to balance things out. Now... Jack, before we get on to the Arsenal side of this, with Pulisic and Sterling injured, some will argue that Chelsea needed this signing, while others would maybe say a 100 million investment shouldn't be reactive. Considering Chelsea were going big for a midfielder only a fortnight ago, how do you feel here? Because a central midfielder and a backup to Reese James feel like the greater priorities here. 100%. I think what this this transfer is it kind of signals the end for players such as Hudson Odoi, Ziyech. They they're gonna they're gonna be turfed out. They aren't going to have. We've got when they're all fully fit. Got nine players that can well, play in the yeah, three four positions. I've got it in front of me, Jack. Uh, if we think that Potter likes to have three offensive players, you've now got Mudrick, Fafana. Pulisic, Felix, Sterling, 
Ziyech, Broha, Abamyang, Havertz. And on top of that next season, you've got Nkunku, Lukaku, and Hudson Adoy to fill those three spaces. <laughs> to you, outrageous. was this more about needing the player or if we're going to be, was it about beating Arsenal to the player? It, it was about beating Arsenal, I think. I think Todd saw that we can't compete with Arsenal this season on the pitch. So what we don't want to do, what we don't want to do is lose face. So we're, we're just going to show them that we're still the number one team in London by getting all of their transfer targets. When you quite rightly point out that giving Yao Felix a six-month holiday in London <laughs> until Simeone fucks off isn't really what we should be paying £11 million for. Vice versa. Uh, no, sorry. And yeah, with Mudrik, like, he's got 12 goals in the Ukrainian league and he's just fucking spent £100 million quid. I understand. I think that shows me that at the point you bought Felix, you weren't planning to get Mudrik. Probably. It, we... I, I, <laughs> I imagine it got so far down the line that we was just about to put pen to paper, signed a new deal that Atletico without us really knowing about it, and we just didn't want to back out. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And people can say, oh, why are you getting upset about your owner spending money? It's such a weird thing to be upset about. And <laughs> it I is kind for of most of us. I kind of feel weird about it myself. But this, this, the chickens will come home to roost on this. Yeah. I understand that there's an eight and a half year contract yeah. so you can spread it, the payments over the years. And with Enzo Fernandez, because it was a release yeah. clause, it hits the books differently. It hit the hundreds, the, the full amount hits the book in that year. Yeah. I understand that. But it's still, not only is that a lot of money, it's a lot of money to spend on someone that isn't proven even in the Ukrainian league. So <laughs> the press over there, I did have the phrase earlier, one of the papers over there, something not letting the cat out of the bag but it's something to do with a cat in a bag that effectively means look you're not going to really see just how bad of a deal this is until it's a bit further down the line and it sounds like sour grapes for me if you if we go back a week i still want to sign the player so i'm not doing that at all in midfield you've got Jorginho, kante kovacic loftus cheek mount zakaria gallagher and chukwameka it's clear to see, and look, we're still led to believe you're going to drop 75 million on Caicedo before the end of the window. So maybe I was about to say, I three. mean, I don't think they're done, are they? Is the thing. Well, I, I, I just find it. I, yeah, sorry, mate. You okay. finished your point. Well, as, as an Arsenal fan, I was gutted when the news broke. You hit it well. Too badly. But <laughs> um, we know Chelsea are paying more than we bid. Now, it's not much more. I think we bid around 90 million euros. Chelsea is just around the 100 mark. If at the start of the window, we thought this was going to be a 40 million pound signing. And so Shakhtar, the job they've done through the media and everything is, I mean, I guess phenomenal when you when you look at it. There's no, there's a reason they were parading him on the pitch like they were handing him over, like it was the father handing over the bride. The structure is the different part. The add-ons are more achievable from what we know. The wages are higher. We'd agreed a deal of around 34000 a week. Chelsea's, we believe, is closer to 150000 a week. I think 
I mean, you laugh, but Hudson Odoi is on 180. So but also, I mean, when when you make a deal this quickly, that shows your desperation, and so you haven't done the background work with the player that we clearly had. Um, just copying someone else's homework at this point. I, I think from Arsenal's perspective, they just had no way of knowing that if we'd matched the terms that Shakhtar eventually said, that Chelsea wouldn't just up the bid and so on and so on. It's a horrible look for that prick Matt Law, who <laughs> I'm annoyed I unblocked him, but I wanted to get the England uh, squad announcements before Connor, so I unblocked him. <laughs> and then about a week ago, he put a thing out after uh, Dario Cerna was in the box saying, look, I mean, there's some bemusement among the Chelsea ownership that such a big thing's made of this. They were never really going to meet the kind of money that Arsenal were talking about. And just this has been made into a thing that it isn't. A week later, he's tweeted exclusives, you know, this big thing. Chelsea have done their homework. Guesswork from so many of these journalists. I saw some Arsenal fans arguing that we hadn't been financially bullied, as Agbon Lahore said on TalkSport. I don't know how you can argue otherwise. We absolutely have been. But yeah. I'm also not sure if there's a winner in that scenario. No, there isn't. Because how many... Name me three Chelsea signings of the last decade that have gone on to absolutely bang. Like, we just seem to be cursed when it comes to transfers. So I'm so reluctant to see Chelsea, my team, spend over £60 million on a on a player. Because... Our best players that have played the best football for us have all come through the academy, believe it or well, not. I said to TK in a group chat in the week, so there, there is evidence of this, that I was a bit uncomfortable when I saw that it was 90 million all in from Arsenal. I couldn't believe it was that high from where we were. And from what a, a journalist I listened to today said that with the wages that Arsenal had agreed, they looked at it as saying, this is a player we really do want. We're prepared to go to this 100 million euro mark or whatever it was because the total price of the deal is probably going to be similar to what they're paying Gabriel Jesus for his contract plus fee. And that was how they were going to justify it to themselves. I do think Arsenal had to factor in the price of the opportunity. Last January, we didn't invest and we chose to wait for summer and we missed out on top four by three points. Maybe in one point in the end. Well, Spurs invested and those players were crucial, obviously. Arsenal needed to ask internally whether that extra money would have won them a league title, or Europa League or an FA Cup, and whether that justifies things. I don't know how far down the line this was with Chelsea. That Ben Jacobs, who was very close to the deal the whole way through, said Mudrick was on the phone to Arsenal one last time saying, can you match what they're offering? And they essentially said no. Like we've that's we that was our limit and we'll ultimately know more at the end of the window when we see if we have a backup option arsenal had this thing where you know when united constantly every journalist was like they're not going to get into a bidding war they won't be held to ransom arsenal have been saying that for the last couple of years similar to man city and we know the reasons those clubs have run in a similar way and that they had a plan for all circumstances. The last couple of years, before we signed Ramsdale, we wanted David Raya. Before Ben White, we wanted Jules Kunde, Jesus, there was Vlahovic beforehand. Before Zinchenko, there was Lissandro Martinez as the new left-back. And Mudrik came into the picture when we couldn't get Rafinha, who Chelsea also tried to pinch. 
who is now for sale for Barcelona because they hate him. So this system works if you do have a backup option. The sense it feels like is Arsenal are very confident in this and so their backup options may be quite far behind. But if there's a sense where Arsenal say, well, we have this policy, we need to stick to it, I do think they need to bear in mind just what can be achieved and what has been achieved with the size of squad we have now because there's a lot more football to come and they could be kicking themselves in a couple of months' time if Eddie Nketiah is ran into the ground while Jesus is always out, already out and we've got a cup, maybe party goes down and he didn't sign a midfielder. You can't plan for every opportunity, but you should at least be able to have an explanation. It's not like where you look at and say, we only have one option. If there's five players out in one position, you can say, well, look, we did our best. That's where I think maybe they should have considered the extra money, but 100 million is 100 million. And uh, if they're going to be asking you for more than that afterwards, I, I don't know how you work it. We'll see what Chelsea do now. Maybe Jack will be on there in a week's time saying, well, how did we not sign a midfielder? And we did, and we spent this money on Mudrick. I, I don't think I've ever been that, invested in a player flopping like I have this. <laughs> Good to know. I, I, I'm sure we won't disappoint you either. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think not getting a midfielder and not getting a backup right back, if we don't do that before the window closes, that's it's going to be absolutely insane. Um, <sighs> the, lack of, honestly, the lack of obvious I, yeah. choices on the market is a tough one as well. There, there is that, and I think for a winger, Enzo that is. Fernandez, a hundred million pounds on or hundred million euros on Enzo Fernandez makes so much more sense than the Mudrick transfer, because you're going to get those forwards back soon. They're not out forever. I mean, I think we'll probably get rid of Pulisic, Ziyech, and Kudsun Adoy because Pulisic is always injured. Like, but always. people have to want to buy these guys. Yeah, I think I don't think you'll trou- be troubled to find many suitors for Pulisic. I think even on the cheap, I think even back to America potentially, I don't think Pulisic would want that. But you, is the Pulisic th- one not similar to when you look at the struggles we've had trying to get rid of Nicolas Pepe? Has Pulisic been better than Nicolas Pepe? I don't think he's had as much trust put in him as Nicolas Pepe. So I but think we can't get fifteen million for Pepe. I can't believe he's still there. He's on loan at the moment at Nice. No one will buy him. So we've tried to put him in a shop window and it's not worked. Yeah, I think Pulisic could do with being in a less physical league because he is always injured. He's either struggling for form because he's coming back from injury, playing well in a sub-appearance, and then starts and then gets injured again. So he's in this constant loop of out of form, looks okay, injured. TK. Sorry, Jack. No, no, you go, you go. Arsenal in this window now, they obviously have to react. I may genuinely be in tears on here if we get to deadline day again and it's like the last one because, I mean, Douglas Louise had me in bits, so I don't know what a lack of signing could do here. Should they abandon their policy of, look, we sign the players under the age of 23 in that they're going to be better in a couple of years' time and they'll grow together as a squad? Or should Arsenal look at where they are on the table and say, Look, we need to bring in some ready-made, experienced players now. Um, it depends because does that policy mean they haven't done any scouting on any players like that? I would think that would be. I'm I'm saying so. If the opportunity arose for 
Wilfred Zaha hmm. on a three-year deal and he's already 29. Do you do that or do you look at Arsenal have been linked with there's a guy in the MLS, Facundo Torres, who's been linked with a number of players. Do Arsenal say, this is more in line with our policy, this is what we can do, we get this one over the line? Yeah, I would I would take opportunity strikes like the Zaha deal. I think someone should go for that. If you can get them for the right money with Palace now, obviously with that deal winding down, then I think now's the time to strike with him. You can get a couple of years out of him. And the Arsenal are eight points clear at the top of the league. So you can't kind of go like, we're just building for the future. It's like you're in the here and now. No, I agree. Um, and this isn't a, a monumental break from it. Do you know what I mean? You're not dropping 80 million pounds on a 30-year-old or something. It's, you know, for the right money, for the right opportunity. Um, absolutely. And look, we're not in a too, dispar- too dissimilar position in terms of our some of our policies at times where you go, okay, they, you can have a policy, but you can't bend it at times. You don't have to religiously stick to this. Part of the issue is we have no sh- we have now shown our hand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Jack, if you need to bounce, then uh, bounce when you need to. Adios. Yeah. TK, an opportunity that seems to be on the market is Leandro Trossard now. Mm. So... He wants to leave Bryson in this transfer window. His agent claimed on Friday that the player has been ostracised at the club since an altercation between the Belgium international and the teammate. He's been linked with a number of teams. He was omitted from the squad for the FA Cup win over Borough. He left training uh, before the Liverpool game on Saturday prematurely without permission. Is this a deal Arsenal should look at or is that, again... Can you bounce? Can you bounce back from the bad attitude accusations? Because it can go both ways. Should we always take them at face value? Arsenal bought Aubameyang after he was ostracised at Dortmund. He's brilliant for several years, and then he left on similar terms. Mm, yeah. Do you have to look at what you've got? Because so much of what we hear this squad is built on is the sheer harmony throughout. Yeah, it's a particularly delicate one with you. Bearing in mind. This upturn really has coincided with Aubameyang being out the door, hasn't it? So, yeah. Um, and I don't think he, you know, was probably the most problematic character either, as, as far as they go. I think he's obviously caused some problems, but I don't think he was, you know, if we were, did a, a list of football's bad boys, I don't think he's getting anywhere near the top, is he? <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. I wouldn't have thought this too much with Trossard, but now you've no. got a situation where he's had this. Deserby seems like a good manager and a good character as well. So it seems odd. And they've been very honest about the public, about the fallout as well. You rarely get as much transparency as they've given us here. Where I've been like, yeah, we are not happy. Deserby said, I'll have him back, but he needs to understand I'm the manager. Mm, crazy, really. But this, and then there was something with Trossard with the Belgium squad, wasn't it? And look, I mean, yeah. that squad the th- clearly has The thing issues. with the Belgium squad was supposedly that he was very disconcerted with how easy everyone was taking these defeats and how awful the 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 lack of harmony and he was kind of asking them to raise standards but look you never really know he he just turned 28 in december mm. have we got an idea of a fee that brighton would be after well so tottenham have had a bid rejected i don't know if you're aware of this i knew someone had i didn't know it was but tottenham had a 12 million offer rejected yeah that does seem a bit disrespectful where I read today they're looking for closer to 25. That seems fair. 
I mean, I know they they want him out, but he's not out of contract soon, is he? So there's some there's a lack of transparency here. So technically, his contract could be up in six months, but Brighton have an option to extend it by a year. We don't know yet whether they extended it or not. Yeah, that was it, wasn't it? Because earlier in the season, we were having the conversations like, trust all that our yeah. contract at the end of the summer, yeah. what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Um, which you'd assume even if they've fallen out, they'll take up the option just to try and get something for him, won't exactly. they? they uh, yeah, I mean, look, to answer your question again, he's another one. You'd go take the opportunity while it's here. If you get it for the right money, I think you can probably, with the situation Arsenal in at the minute as well, and go, well, look, you're coming from Brighton. We're top of the league you kind of find your way in the pecking order here. You're not like the big fish in a small pond now. Because no. I've not been shown. I've, I've said on here multiple, I think he's brilliant. I think he's so, so good. Very, very good. Yeah, very good player. I think he um, he probably benefits as well from, and it might sound a bit odd, but McAllister's success at the World Cup, I think you can go, okay, these players maybe aren't just all their good Brighton players. It's like they're just genuinely yeah. good players. Well, the other thing as well is every day we hear a story that Barcelona need to sell players. Now, every time they want to buy a player, they're saying, look, we'll take him if you give him him for free. And then <laughs> they're saying, and then they're saying, well, if you want Ferran Torres, you need to give us a hundred million for it. <laughs> and if you want Rafinha, 130 million for him. And it's like, this isn't computing. The person who's desperate for money doesn't say, I'm only selling this if you give me a grand. They're saying, I'll take what I can get. I think we'll struggle to get one of those at the door. You're more likely to get a similar situation to the Atletico Madrid one, where it's in everyone's best interest, well, it's in their best interest to showcase their player on favourable terms and get some money in the door. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a big when the player moves to a big club for the first time, and I know he was at Man City, but we're aware of the differences. You don't want to throw in the towel too soon, and. I don't believe that Rafinha or Ferran Torres would do so. Ferran Torres is the type of player for me that if there was an opportunity on the market, that Liverpool would have been in for him a couple of years ago. It was the kind of buy low signing that I thought they essentially made their names on. Hmm. I don't think we're going to be able to buy him low. And the fact that we have shown we're willing to go to 100 million euros, I wouldn't be surprised if there's an awful lot of teams going, you're never going to believe this. 100 million is actually what we want for him. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I think so. Would you ditch Sun for him if you were Spurs or is that too soon? Probably a little bit soon. I don't, yeah, a tricky thing with Trossard. Yeah, I don't, I don't 100% know about the fit and that. In that when Sun's on it, a little bit more pace, Something. a bit more pace and direct than Trossard, but Trossard's probably better technically and creatively. So it's a not a perfect fit anyway, but. It'd be interesting. Something they should maybe look at is um, he played left wing back at Brighton on occasion. Mm. Maybe you move Perisic further forward and do it that way. Maybe you say he's better than Perisic and we'll have him in the team. Maybe you don't buy another wing back until you know what Conte's doing. Maybe they should think about that before they get Pedro Porro. Just a word of advice. Yeah, it's probably true. The Manchester derby... Do you have anything to say on Liverpool <laughs> lost to Brighton or is it the same thing you've said for the last couple of weeks? I thought Klopp summed it pretty well in his uh, interview, didn't he? I thought it was uh, 
he said he called it the worst he'd ever seen from any of his teams. Yeah. I think he just said any. Maybe he just meant any game he'd ever he seen. He did. Rather than just any of, any of his teams. Maybe teams. he just meant any game that he'd seen, which would be quite a quite a claim. I don't know how you feel as one of his previous players, that, um, like Mines and the others, where he specified like even and then named his other teams. He was at, like, it wasn't even this bad when I was managing them. <laughs> I'm surprised, I'm half surprised the journalist didn't ask, could you name some of the worst games you've ever had? Just because when, <laughs> when they see he's under a skin of it, it's like, oh, come yeah. on, give us a bit more. Um, the Manchester Derby kicked off the weekend and United were able to send out a statement of intent to the rest of the Premier League. I mean, Gary Neville said they're going to finish ahead of Arsenal yesterday. Um, maybe just trying to do as usual, but it does seem that in the space of one game, everyone has bought the Man United stocks. Mm. And so the best place to start, the only place to start is the controversy that surrounded their equaliser in the 78th minute. Mm. Fair to say neither of us were rooting for United here, unless you're going to tell me otherwise. No, no, I can't say I was. No. <laughs> so Casemiro floats a ball over the top that's clearly intended for Rashford. Rashford runs forward about 30 yards onto it clearly in an offside position when the ball was played. Rashford decides when he gets a shout, I mean, he claims afterwards, I didn't even know of it, I just heard a shout <laughs> to leave the ball. Bruno strokes it home and then in the rattiest of celebrations is in the official's face within seconds. And so I'm sure we're going to see an FA charge very soon, but I won't hold my breath. They seem to be explaining the rules to the officials like <laughs> they thought they could be unaware of it. And it all came down to whether they feel Rashford is interfering with play or not. I don't see any way you can say he wasn't interfering with play. It's among the most bizarre decisions I've ever seen. It was so odd, wasn't it? In the, as watching it live for. Well, okay, is the, you know, if we take Rashford out of the equation, if he's not there, is the defender going to get across to Bruno? I certainly think at the very least, he's got the ambition to do it. As he's looking at Rashford, he's thinking, well, he's in front of me now. I can't get wrong side of him. I won't catch him anyway. And so, like, his just sheer presence there alone, I think, impacts it, even if you didn't want to look at anything else. And then, yeah, in terms of if it's just the, as in a direct interfering with play, he gets as close to the ball as you can. Yeah whilst not touching it. So, yeah, it's the whole ball was intended for him, whatever they might say. It wasn't intended for Bruno, I don't think. So, yeah, I've, well, the more concerning thing was the speed of the decision. Well, they seemed yeah. very quick to give it, which look, does lend itself towards a Old Trafford decision, doesn't it? I mean, Howard Webb, back. Yeah, yeah, with a vengeance. What, was that Pep quote real, by the way? What was that? It says, um, I don't know about the decision, but I know where we played the game. I don't know if that's really. It sounds like it probably is. Fantastic. If yeah, so, it's a great throw. It doesn't, doesn't help them. Um, so I read that effectively, Akanji could have decimated Rashford and we'd have pulled it back to say that he was offside. Because Akanji doesn't make a play for the ball, they've judged to say, well, obviously he didn't feel Rashford was interfering with the play. <laughs> what? And so that's that's how they explain it. Because he doesn't make a play for Rashford, 
that's how they rationalise the interference. Have you seen these photoshops where they remove Rashford from the picture? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did actually. I did look at those. Which makes it look even worse. And you can go back through and there was threads and threads of different goals that they've ruled out. There was the one that I believe it was Everton against United where the Everton player kicks it and the the Everton player that's down has to lift his leg up and he goes past De Gea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they say that was interfering. These... Well, this is, yeah, some of the ones they do give for interfering when you're like, hang on a minute. He was nowhere near this. And this was Rashford right in the midst of the action. I don't know who, when they sit down for these meetings to clear up the rules, so many, so many of them they say... I know it would be a good idea. Let's have a rule that's entirely subjective. <laughs> yeah. That'll go well with football fans. I, I saw tweets of people saying, I've been a football fan for 40 years and apparently I still don't know the offside rule. <laughs> like this used to be, uh, admittedly, a mostly sexist joke of, uh, do you know the offside rule? When someone said they're a fan of football. It seems that most of us now don't know it either. Yeah, we're getting further away from it, aren't we, as well, of understanding it. Akanji was asked by BBC and he was as incensed as you could imagine. He said, for me, the first goal's a joke that it's going to be allowed like this. In that situation, I see Rashford is clearly offside, so I play him offside. He runs really to the last second and he stops when the ball is just in front of him. Mm. He's right in front of Edison to score the goal and then he stops because Bruno's calling him from behind that he's not in an offside position. I understand that he doesn't touch the ball but he runs for like 30 metres. He's chasing the ball and then he stops. For me, it's clearly offside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's simple. And it must have affected how Akanji would defend it. It must have done because <laughs> seeing Rashford there and seeing Bruno run through two very different things. Yeah, and something with this, it's, it's no excuse for the, capit- the capitulation that happens afterwards. There's a shot of Pep and... This has happened a few times at City this season where their heads just go. Mm. And Pep is temple tapping immediately. Mm. And then Garnacho, I know he's a bit tricky, but still, you can't let him get that ball across. The defenders, no one following Rashford. It's just horrible from their perspective. I mean, a draw was perfect for us. I was well happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... Didn't go that way at all. I mean, I backed, I backed United at one all because I thought I know which way this game's going. Then lost it all because I put the majority of it on sports. Um, <laughs> I told you that's going to be an look, expensive venture. You keep doing that. We can take that L. Yeah, elsewhere. Are, I mean, see, I have every right to feel shortchanged because if that goal doesn't go in, I don't think the game flips on its head like it did. I thought when City got their goal, it had been the end of, they'd been turning the screw, hadn't they? It looked like they were doing yeah. their thing. And then they did sit off of it, which is a bit weird. Um, but I, I think they would have been fine. But once that goal goes in, suddenly the atmosphere's up. And like you said, they lost their heads in a way that they shouldn't do an experienced team like that. And it was always going to be uh, United's win. By the way, with that, with the goal, because it kind of got mired with the offside thing, rightly, because it shouldn't have been a goal. Uh, a guy who does a lot of goalkeeping threads online he's pretty good I forget his name it's not good of me but he did want Edison on how easy he made it by coming out like he did uh, John Harrison yeah I think that's it isn't it and I think yeah. he didn't want Edison the one that, previously the one that Carragher always quotes yeah that, that might be it actually yeah 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 um, yes at JD Harrison I get him confused with the um, 
the guy who always comes out whenever there's a penalty thing and he does the, a list of 10 tweets yes, of yes. the psychological things like no mate I mean there's a bit of because this there's there's another enough. goal there's another goalkeeping guy who's been beefing with Mark Goldbridge today <laughs> right because Goldbridge said that De Gea's distribution was very good Jesus Christ and he pointed out that he didn't connect with a single long pass <laughs> and he had a 51% pass accuracy <laughs> And then Goldbridge has gone on every show he's on today saying about how this kid's just at uni and the the most fame he's ever going to have is me talking about him now. He's taking any good spirits then. Yeah, he's doing the Eddie Hearn. Look, you're on a Saturday night analysing De Gea's distribution. Maybe go outside <laughs> a little bit. And it's like, of the irony here. <laughs> yeah, I just thought he was a really good thread on different instances in which Edison has really fucked up one-to-one. Yeah, so it's... It, his, his first name may not be John but it's J.D. Harrison is his name right right I say that because it was always I mean I always thought well Edison and Allison are probably neck and neck in my mind and I'll probably give the edge to Edison because he's that much better with the feet and then you look at that and you go well I guess it is kind of clear how Edison kind of put his head above him certainly for Brazil and I think generally in people's minds because in yeah. those situations touch wood normally he's very good and he's just done his best recently to Say, so don't count my old mate out too quickly. Yeah, so for his mate a lifeline. Now, Jack Grealish doesn't score many. Um, most goals he's ever got in a season is 10 in 1920 season for Aston Villa. This goal was clearly the biggest in his career to date, and it's all now for nothing. Ouch. yeah. For the second Premier League game, again, away to a big six club, he's come on and made an impact. Assist against Chelsea, goal here. Has something changed for him? His last five now, he's got a goal and three assists. Mm. Or is he being used differently? I like it. I think he probably has decided he needs to knuckle down and do that a bit more, be a bit more direct. The assist against Chelsea was from, right, I'm going to get to the byline. I'm going to do, I'm going to whip a ball across, not just slow things around. Um, This was a really nice arriving late, good connection. You want to see more of that from him. I think he probably has been working on that. I think he's probably taken it upon himself to do that. So, fair play to him. Yeah, Haaland. Now, there's a point that you can see in the second half where Pep is shouting at him and telling him that, essentially, you need to get involved more. Mm. And Haaland shrugs his shoulders at him and turns his back. If if I'd asked you beforehand when the lineups came out to predict where this game would be won and lost... I think most people would look at Luke Shaw at centre-back and Haaland up front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Haaland, I don't believe, had a touch in the area. He was he had more touches around the halfway line than he did the 18-yard box. Did United do anything in particular, or is he just in a rough patch? I thought he didn't look particularly lively either, did he, I thought? I thought his movement wasn't as sharp as it normally is. Even when there's been a lot of times in City where I've felt a bit bad for him that sometimes he'll make a run and they just won't go it. They'll make another pass or whatever. And you can see him pour into the space. Like, look, this is what I want to do. Um, United, I thought, defended well. It had a really good shape to them. Um, and sure, obviously, he's doing all right in that role, to be fair to him. I, I never would have thought yep. he could do as part of a two. Maybe as part of a three, not as part of a two. But I do think it's on, regardless of what United do, it's on City as a team and Haaland as a player to expose that you've got a left back playing centre back in a two you've got to do something with that and you'd have bet if you did even a few games ago you'd have put everything you've got on if you said Luke Shaw is going to be playing 
center half in the two against Harlan, you go, wow, am I putting him down for two or three minimum amount of goals? Because he'll a lot of, expose him. A lot of these stats now look worse because of the World Cup, but Harlan doesn't have an away goal since September the 2nd, I think. Mm. Um, I think Casemiro gets all the plaudits in that midfield for United and rightfully slow, rightfully so, but Fred did a great job just harassing Rodri and stopping them building up. And I'm almost certain he's going to be asked to do the same job against Party on Sunday. I mean, he'll probably run him into an injury the way he was moving around on there on Saturday. If Fred can turn it around at United, then, I mean, that's a hell of a comeback story because we, he's slowly we getting... We did a while, but didn't we? That he's not as bad as United fans made out because I feel the same for Maguire. Maguire's not as bad as United fans make out. There's some players that they say are particularly good that I would have an alternate uh, view on as well. But they're now one point behind City. If they can beat Crystal Palace in the midweek and then if they can get a win at the Emirates, they'll be three points behind Arsenal. Are they title contenders? Because... Every Arsenal player has distanced themselves from that one game at a time. Varane came out on Saturday and said they're title contenders. <laughs> yeah. They're much the same with uh, the fan bases on the whole. They're sort of, no, no, we're not in it. It's like, yeah, we definitely are in it. And I, I disagree with both of you. Um, I don't think they are. Only in the, look, unless maybe they're going to make another signing or two in this, in this window, but I don't think it doesn't seem like they are, does it? Um, no, they're one of the, they're one of the lowest scorers in the league and Rashford has eight in his last seven. Is it a case of he's going to have to keep that up? Yeah. Are we expecting Weghorst to do crazy things? This is it. Weghorst is probably not going to do a crazy... I think he's the an all right factor. The X factor. I think he's an all right sign. He's something a bit different if they need that as well. Not many teams go for like a plan B now, so it's nice to still have as yeah. the big man off the bench. Um, he's found out there's a tax to be in Lanky as well, hasn't he? Because he's not like <laughs> yeah. he's not like a more rash signing like the Agalo one, is he? But it's just because of how he looks. It's uh I'll tell you what, I think they may have done the same thing as I did. And on their timeline they saw the highlights. Remember that turn he did against United last season? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. He did the little back heel and spun between two defenders and then played it to Jay Rodriguez. <laughs> maybe they just saw that. Or maybe Ten Hag, if you're Dutch or you play in the air of Adizi, we'll take give you. you a chance. Don't you worry. But no, I don't think they're title contenders because of that. I think ultimately Martial will pick up an inj- another injury as he did, and he won't hit four. I think Rashford. I still need to see it for a longer period of time. He looks great, and I'm glad he does. He has had a season doing it. The season where they knocked PSG out of the league. What he had like over thirty goals in all competitions. Did he have over thirty, did he? Four yeah. That- it's over twenty five. Yeah, not. it was a, it was a big season. Yeah, I knew we had I knew we had twenty plus, and it was a good year. And we were looking for him to kick on, and, and various issues stopped that. But I don't doubt that he'll probably pick up another injury or just have another slight dip in form. Not even that it's bad, but just not yeah. quite as good as this. And in fairness to him, he's. I don't think you'll look at him and go, right? You have to be our main goal threat. I think he should be your second probably option in terms of of goals so it's on the club yeah. to have improved that so I think they'll fall a little bit short of that uh, but look that's I mean pretty good going in Ten Hag's first year you wouldn't bet against them winning the League Cup as well so no because this, the strength of Arsenal is, isn't it that we're not relying on any one player to score the goals like yeah, yeah, Arsenal exactly. has eight uh, Erdogan has eight Saka has seven 
with United, the goals are largely coming from that one area with City. I mean, we don't need to go into how they're doing. When I was speaking to Connor, and we had quite a good conversation about this, um, he pointed to that even in the Europa League, they're having to take it seriously from the get-go because they have Barcelona. Nice, yeah, true. Now, that can be a springboard or it can be a collection of games. I Actually, if Arsenal are still top when we play our next Europa game, I think we should bomb the competition off, to be I honest. think you will. Well, not bomb it off, but you'll uh, play a second eleven and... Arteta doesn't really do that. I think you probably will. I think you might change it a little bit. I think you <laughs> might change his mind. Tough one. City, we're all kind of expecting them to turn around. I know you spoke before about Arsenal maybe breaking their hearts. And I did want to ask you the question because you'd never seen Liverpool win a league title uh, before that. You'd, you'd not seen Liverpool win a cup in quite a, quite a while before that. At what point did you start to tell yourself, okay, maybe this is happening? <laughs> well, I will say we, we did win the Champions League the year before, but I know what you mean. Until that spell of, yeah, sorry. Until that spell yeah. of success, it had been a, a while, hadn't it? You are right. Um, yeah, it's, to be honest, you, start, you did genuinely start to think that um, that late win um, against Villa with the the Robertson and Mane yeah. goals of the day. Um, yeah, I was at the Emirates. I think that was the one where you're like, okay. And I, I think that was the dagger for City as well. I think that was when it, oh God, these guys won't go away. Um, yeah, little things like that. I remember we had a game where we had an absolute stinker against Sheffield United. And when Alden bounced one in off the defender, took a horrible ricochet and went in. And you're <laughs> like, oh, okay, this this might be on then. Um, and it seemed like City kind of saw that as well. And, and not down tools, but it's hard to keep that up, isn't it? And that's, yeah. we're, we're getting close to that situation with Arsenal now. We're at a crossroads, it, I think. It is rough because you do feel further on in the season and we do we're still We're only halfway, have, aren't we? Well, we've got 20 games left. We're not even halfway. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think Arsenal can play the season with fear in the sense like the fans are that if this happens to Thomas Party, we're done. Mm-hmm. Because we have seen enough in the Cups to say that Granite Xhaka can't do that job deeper. Fabio Vieira can't do the Granite Xhaka job. Essentially, that core there, we can probably cope a couple of games without Saka or Martinelli, but then that's if you've got Jesus. At the, at the moment, it seems mental to say, there's a worry we could run Eddie into the ground because he looked knackered. <laughs> the chance he has from the Xhaka pass, I think if that's earlier in the game, he controls that and buries it past uh, Lloris. He did put a shift in, didn't he? And so the, the before the Newcastle game, that front line and midfield had all played three games in ten days, and it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. I don't know at what point I'll believe it because I obviously thought about it. Yeah, 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 exactly. And like my mistake last season was, I said I I would avoid even the Champions League music. I was like, I don't want to hear it <laughs> because the, I just had this real like vivid vision I feel like one of these birds with the vision boards of just being able to just sit in peace and just put that Champions League music on <laughs> and just go and it maybe says where we are this season that I actually was sat there yesterday and I had a little worry that I was like if we don't win the league title and we do still come top four 
am I still going to be like as buzzy? Because like, we are back. And like, that's a genuine like worry because I, I still think I will shed tears the first time I hear that Champions League music again. When we went out of it in like 2014, I did not think like seven, eight years later, you never we do. still wouldn't no. be back. You always think it'd just be a year or two. It's never. And so there's this, just so many things, but this team, you said it as well could be famous last words i don't get the feeling that they're just gonna crumble and collapse no and certainly not in the fashion that people think i think people think it'll be a total collapse well by the way if you drop points against united that's not you know oh god is there as going it's like you can't win that every game it's gonna there are gonna be some that's that's gonna be the narrative by the way because yeah for sure before before um january if we were told look you're going to lose one game yeah. out of United, Spurs, Newcastle. Most Arsenal fans would have been annoyed. You probably go, that's probably about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the issue is, and you said it earlier, I didn't want it to come from me. I do look at this team like you are the best team in the league. Mm. Like I, I'm more nervous to play United on Sunday than I am to play Man City next month. And that's largely because no one really cares if you lose to Man City. It's kind of like what should happen. Yeah. For the first time on Saturday, I was considering, because I really thought we were going to lose the Spurs, that United could go level on points with us on Sunday. Yeah, it kind of hadn't really dawned on me. <laughs> so, oh, they're a bit closer than I thought. Yeah, they will have played an extra game at that point. Mm. But we've still got to play, we've still got to play City twice. We've still got to play Newcastle away. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of games to go through, but... I, even the thing now, and I understand you adjust the expectations with this with Arsenal last year, but the sense now that if Arsenal comes second, it's going to be this massive disaster when more people didn't have us in their top four predictions than did. Mm. Weird how these things work. And oh, I already saw a Spurs fan earlier in the week saying it would be the biggest uh, bottle job in Premier League history, not winning the title after 18 games. I don't think anyone wants to remind them of... Uh, where they were after 18 games in the Leicester season. <laughs> anyway. I mean, look, you, you don't have to talk to me about stats of no team has been in this position and not won the league. We've, we've got most brackets covered <laughs> yeah. in that one. Um, all right. Let's move on to another sport and we'll move on to MMA first. John Jones, arguably the greatest fighter of all time, will fight Cyril Garn for the heavyweight championship at UFC 285 on March the 4th, Dana White has confirmed. The announcement came after he said they were unable to come to terms with now former heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou. This will be Jones' first appearance in the octagon since beating Dominic Reyes in February 2020. And Dana says that they've been negotiating with Francis for two years now. They offered to make him the highest paid heavyweight in the history of the company. And he turned it down. First reaction to all of this, because it was slightly ruined by a T-Mobile employee. <laughs> Presumably Dane is going to put him on ice like he did to Ariel. Presumably he's not going to take it well. <laughs> I saw um, a tweet and it said, um, look, Dana shouldn't be too critical because that T-Mobile employee is going to have to live with that for the rest of his life. <laughs> He's going to have to know, you don't need to punish me. I know what I've done. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, yeah, I 
one of my first reactions was I thought the Ngannou film was really odd. Uh, I was hoping you, assuming you will have a bit more knowledge on. In terms of, I said about they've been negotiating for a couple of years. It's so unlike the UFC to go, right, we can't get this done. You can go with someone of this profile. So I think there is an expiry point because what was happening, from my understanding, is there's a champion's clause in the contract that effectively means your contract gets extended by a fight every time you win yeah. and you're still the champ because they don't want the champ to be able to walk away. Yeah. What I did read and the impression I got is that there is still an expiry point on that contract if, if a fight hasn't been agreed for a certain period of time. What then happens is it gets opened up to the other promoters to go into. And like the NBA, the UFC then have the opportunity to match that contract. And if they match that contract, then they're able to take Francis back. Yeah, There's probably a bit more to it than that because I don't know how that would be regulated, but that's effectively it. Francis says this isn't just about money. Now, a lot of these things happened where they threatened to sue him right before he was facing Garn the last time for a breach of contract and speaking to other promoters. <laughs> he was speaking effectively. He's spoken to someone, and I don't necessarily think this is the best way to go about it. Remember there was the thing that he was going to fight Tyson Fury? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he has seen at some point boxing money. Yeah, someone's flashed it under his nose, haven't they, for sure. He He's then gone back to the UFC and said, look, this is what I want to do but this is what I can be paid if I don't fight here. It's a bit tricky for him because he's not going to get the Mike Tyson exhibition money, I would hope. And Jesus, no. he also can't fight Jake Paul. No, no. So the money is different. But I think it came to a point where he's been so disrespected that sometimes you, you just want to sever ties. The UFC and we spoke about the job they did with McGregor and then we compared it to the job that's been done with Masvidal and other fighters. The The lack of promotion for Francis Ngannou is the biggest misstep in the history of the UFC. It is insane. This guy is the easiest guy to promote. Hmm. He's got the story of the troubles that he had as a kid and the, the struggles he overcame to travel to America and all the other things. He hits, he has the hardest recorded punch in human history. Every knockout is a highlight reel that's on Sports Center number one play of the day. Yep. This is the first time I've watched someone be knocked out and genuinely questioned if they were dead. <laughs> and still, you can't promote this man. Now, there's a reason they don't release the pay-per-view numbers because I would imagine his numbers are quite good compared to some other champions in the UFC. But they do this so the champions don't have the leverage and they can't say, mm. I know what I'm worth. Yeah. My first response when I saw Jones Garn was, oh. <laughs> because you've waited so long. John Jones said he was going to go to heavyweight in 2013. I was about to say, we talk about it long enough. And so the dream one I've always said on here was Stipe. Yeah. Because we saw the first loss Francis had against Stipe. And maybe this is how we're feeling about Cyril Garn now. 
And we kind of just assumed John Jones can do some wrestling. Francis can't wrestle. This is going to be easy. Mm. And we did see the hell Stipe had to go through to get that takedown in the first fight, by the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that was kind of what it was boiled down to. And the Stipe was kind of, this is the greatest heavyweight in UFC history. He's got everything here. Let's see it. Garn, we now know, is the third person they offered the fight to. So in that sense, if we'd seen Garn have a... We haven't seen him have a comeback fight against Tai Tuivasa, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. It, it just doesn't feel as dangerous as Francis, which no one else would. So did Stipe get offered this or...? Stipe was offered it and said he's also negotiating with the UFC and not able to agree to the terms for a fight. Yeah. He's asking for more money as well. And Dana coming out and saying the highest paid heavyweight since Lesnar tells me Stipe's not been getting paid enough. No, not for a guy routinely referred to as the best heavyweight they've had. It's not great, is it? Well, it's headlined a pay-per-view against Stipe. He's headlined a pay-per-view against DC twice. Overeem. Dos Santos. He's headlined like five or six pay-per-views. Yeah, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Him and Jones always fought a natural matchup and you said the best light heavy ever against the best heavy ever, as certainly how they have been labelled anyway. Um, so it does feel a bit of a miss in that sense but you'll get enough people who'll be hyped that John Jones is coming back so in a way maybe you're just maximising the opportunity for his comeback fight can be gone and then you have options and potentially to try and bring Stipe and Ngannou back into the fold I know certainly with France I think that's going to be difficult but if I'm the UFC do not put a single camera on John Jones before this fight yeah yeah, good. I'm no oil painting. He looks like a fat fuck currently. <laughs> it is mental. Maybe it's the angles. I mean, if I'm taking a selfie, I know I best sit up. Jones seems to be doing every interview slumped up against a cage with his chin tucked down. I know he said he wanted to be a big boy to match the heavyweights. He looks like he's been bulking in the way that I would. <laughs> You need to give him some advice on these angles. He's he's not used to the big man life. I mean, I'm not used to the angles either, but I know the <laughs> angles you don't take them from. And it's you. You spoke about this yesterday. I'm excited about the idea of John Jones fighting. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I, I do think people. Your point about don't put the cameras on. I'd put it away from him so you can still have the mystique of what is this John Jones going to look like I don't need to see if he looks slow on the pads or whatever let's see let's not have anything and because people are going to be expecting prime John Jones and I just I think there was evidence that he was maybe starting to slide anyway maybe it was just a couple of bad performances against Santos and then against Reyes okay it happens but at his age with the lifestyle he's had and with this time out he's not going to have got better in this time off and he's now going up and putting on serious weight gain it's not just he's going up a division as you said he's made a big point that he's got to really fill out into this division I think even that could be a miscalculation against Garn he might have enough anyway I I was emphatic that I felt Garn was going to be a problem just going to be all wrong for him because at some point he's getting clips and that's 
not good. Yeah, I thought Ngani was going to first round head coming off. Yeah, yeah. As it is with Garn, he might have enough that we can sort of say, "Oh, Jones roll back the years." But I, I'm not entirely sold. I think, but the great thing for Jones and the UFC is so many people will be, so many people will be all in on this. I imagine it'll be pay per view over here. You reckon? They do usually three a year. One, they do two that there's going to be the Leon Edwards one. And after that, they're probably looking for one more before a November one. Mm. I think it may be one over here because they'll probably do March, July, November. Actually, I suppose the Leon Edwards one is March as well. Maybe not. Um, maybe they've timed it wrong for our market, but that's never stopped them before. Also, it depends what Connor does end up doing, I guess, doesn't it? Yeah. Um Dana's ran with the message that Francis actually just wants easy fights now, and that's the reason he's not sticking around in the UFC. I, I'd like to believe most people see through this, but I honestly don't know. Increasingly, I think people are seeing through Dana, aren't they? So, um, As a side note, we don't need to see Ngani boxing, by the way. It's just... No, no. It's, it's kind of nobody really wins here, other than unless Ngani does get a good payday, because... The UFC has lost yeah. its most probably entertaining champion and we're going to have to end up watching him box. And I would not be at all surprised if we do see him and Fury. I wouldn't be surprised. No, no. There, there's a guy who admittedly is a heavyweight champion in other promotions, so maybe it makes sense to him to steer him elsewhere. He said that they should do Fury and Garnu bare-knuckle gypsy rules in Africa. So <laughs> look, maybe stay tuned. <laughs> Jones says he wants Henry Cejudo to train him for this one. That's who he's been training with the last couple of months. I did see Henry that. Henry Cejudo also <laughs> is going to have a fight coming up, so I'm not sure he's going to commit to being a full-time trainer. What is Cejudo going to do? Is, is he actually going to get O'Malley? He's going to get someone. Mm. Um, it sounds like they've been waiting. He's going to get Sterling. Okay. You uh, eight eight fight deal by the way, John Jones signed. So eight he's fight. not going to be fighting anywhere else. Yeah, <laughs> they do this with Connor, where yeah, they agree to time. say, look, if you retire, then we keep your rights. Mm. But yeah, still looks rough. Eubank Smith is the fight we have this weekend. All British middleweight fight. Unfortunately, this is on Sky Sports pay per view mm. uh, in Manchester. On paper these two appear to be relatively evenly matched both previous world champions if i mean i think we have to count the ibo if we count that wbo run for liam smith to be honest (laughs) that's the issue isn't it one is a legit organization but a terrible run one isn't a legit organization so make you pick uh both british champions few losses between them comparable ko ratios and fairly similar in terms of the world rankings. Is this... I think we know how both guys want to fight here, unless you tell me wrong. Smith is going to want to fight in close range inside. Eubank now likes to keep a safe distance and box on the outside. Is that how you envisage both guys planning this? Uh, I mean, who knows with Eubank how he how he plans it? He might see himself as a master boxer. He might see himself as a scrapper. You don't really know. Um, yeah, I would assume Smith will think he can beat him on activity. 
um, the breaks that Eubank takes, I guess he'll back himself to, to sort of fill in the blanks. And whilst there's a lot in the action, he'll nick rounds on that. Cause that he's openly acknowledged how tough Eubank is. So I don't know if he really thinks he can get him out of there. Um, for Eubank, I think he'll, he's called him sort of like an ABC fight. And I think Eubank will think he's just got too many weapons in his arsenal. He'll think that Smith, ultimately, if you're not outstanding at something, then Eubank will beat you. And I think that's what he'll bank on with this one as well. Now, a lot of guys, when they go to face Eubank Jr., I think every single guy in the last like five significant fights for him have said, you can't box. I'm going to teach you a boxing lesson. Hmm. Liam Williams tried this. Just everyone on the list has tried it. Is there a chance that Liam Smith tries to box in that sense on the outside, getting his jab going, or can he not fight that fight with Eubank Jr.? No, I, I don't see it. Um, but this is one of one of those things where you can be a boxer but fight on the inside, can't you? And I think Smith, in a conventional sense, probably does things traditionally better than Eubank. Eubank is very unorthodox. And so if you were sort of doing a textbook fight, Liam Smith is probably a better boxer in that sense. But I think Eubank does have some more variety. So even if Smith was able to start better, and he can start slowly, so which could be his detriment anyway, yeah. but even if Smith was to start well and be in a bit of a rhythm, I think you'd back that Eubank would start coming on strong, even if it is just, we've seen it before with Eubank where he just goes, right, I'm just going to start pressing you back now because he's he's physically strong. You know, people like Groves talk yeah. about how strong he is and Groves is a big man. And so Smith coming up from 154, I think he's going to feel that physical strength of Eubank at middleweight as well. Smith's losses are to Canelo, Munguia and Kurbanov. I can't profess to have watched the Kurbanov fight. By all accounts, um, he was a, uh, a Russian decision as well that he probably should have yeah. won it. So, none of them fought Smith the way we expect Eubank to. D- but does an inside fight guarantee it's in Smith's favour? No, no, because let's face it, um, Eubank will try and throw that uppercut <laughs> x amount of times when he's there, won't he? And in theory, yeah. at least Smith will be there for that. Um, I think I don't know if you've seen any of the gloves are off yet. I put myself through earlier because I needed something for a 20 minute watch <laughs> never particularly enjoyed them and it was but it was you might do a stick so it's always yeah, there's always something the there I thought they actually you know what they had a wry smile at some of the stuff the everyone said I thought it was I didn't mind it actually um, but they both made a point that I think I can hurt you to the body and whether that's gamesmanship or not I think we're going to see a fair bit of that I think the way these two go Eubank can box a bit but isn't going to make it a stinger of fight and just try and box on the back foot because I don't think his temperament is that he wants to do that or that his skill set is that suited to it. And I think Smith has to come forward anyway. So we should get an entertaining one that doesn't go in close. The interesting thing to me, I would look at Smith's performance against Fowler yeah. and I'd say those first couple of rounds were shaky. I thought it was the best Fowler's yeah, look. I've got the same down. I thought... <laughs> I thought you kind of busted Smith up in those early rounds. And if Eubank fancied it, I would say, you know what, jump on him early and see what he's got here. Coming up to 160 against a naturally bigger man, let's have a look. First round of that fight, we were fearing the worst and I rarely found myself cheering for Liam Smith, but that was one of the <laughs> that was one of those occasions. Yeah, I, I say I've never seen Fowler like it and he was all over him. And 
when Liam Williams did try to press the action, I thought the the speed of reactions from Eubank was better than I'd seen it before, even just in terms of the, the shot selection. Now, there was a point where any time he so much as touched Liam Williams, he was going down. Really odd, wasn't it? Just an odd fight in general. But it did lead me to think that if Liam Smith does try and press the action like that, are you ruling out Smith stopping Liam Smith? You must you stopping stop. Liam Smith? No, I definitely wouldn't rule it out. Um, I thought the way they sold the Smith-Fowler fight was that and they, they had to try and find an angle, I guess, because Fowler hadn't really done anything in the pro game to indicate he could beat him, that there kind of was Smith too long in the two. So I thought, well, we haven't seen any decline in him yet. And I did think there's a couple of rounds. I found I thought, I didn't think badly hurt him, but I thought he did look shaken up. In, in my head, he went down. I had to check this today. I thought Smith had gone down in the early round. That's how badly I remembered that first round being. Well, I remember I he, he cut him as well, didn't he? And he yeah. just looked bust up. And I'm thinking, oh God maybe this whole thing of him getting old was true. But I, I, it sounds crazy. I think people do genuinely look at that grey hair and think he's older than he is. Yeah. Because I, we haven't really seen any decline until, yeah, those early rounds of that Fowler fight made me think, okay, if Eubank can get into that that rhythm where he does get you hurt, it's just whether he sees it through. Cause, you know, even the Williams one, you go, well, get him out of there then because he looks like Bambi on ice. Yeah. And Eubank does take his foot off the gas, which is an odd thing. Williams was coming back late on. No, Liam Williams thought he won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's yeah, but even you know, you might kind of let you have um a bit of an argument all the time. And yeah. you don't really want to do that with Smith. The the Vargas fight, I think, was level on two cards. There was one round in it on two cards. We've kind of put that fight down to Vargas being awful on the night and not really crediting Smith too much. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a funny one with Smith, isn't it? Probably hasn't got the credit he's probably deserved, actually, really. Um Maybe because of his title run wasn't good, I think is maybe it. But he's tended to, much like Eubank, only fallen short against guys who are either at the top or destined for the top. So, in that sense, it's actually a really good matchup. You just there's no story to it. So the idea of the pay per view is does hurt. I mean, objectively, it's a better fight than the Ben fight, isn't it? And yeah. yet, yep. one of those you oh. go, well, I know why this is pay per view. This. I kind of struggle to justify it a little bit. I was going to ask, do you actually view this as being a 50-50 fight? Because we've spoken before about knowing the fights. And I imagine if Anthony Joshua, Dylan White is made again, that's going to be sold as a 50-50 fight. They're going to say one's coming off a win, one's coming off a batch of losses. And this is a real 50-50 fight, as Sky do. But usually you look at these and they are very much tilted in one guy's favour. Do you see in the do you see this as being like a 60-40, 70-30 fight for Eubank, or do you actually see it as being a 50-50? No, I do think 60-40. Um I think Eubank has slightly less miles on the clock, and I do, you know, he is naturally a, a middleweight. So as long as he's not basically battered from having done a camp for the Ben fight and then gone back into this one, as long as he's okay off that, I think he's just as I said, you've, you've got to be really outstanding at something to beat Eubank. And I think Smith is very, very good at most things, but I don't know. You've got to be outrageously quick or skillful. Or, you know, maybe one day Eubank will just go with someone who can just bang and ultimately he's hittable. And that is his undoing, even with, with his chin. Smith hasn't got that. He ticks most boxes, but I don't know how outstanding he is. And 
as a naturally, you don't want Eubank to be the naturally bigger man, I don't think. I think if he can outmuscle you and bully you, he will. And I think that's probably, even if it's closed down the stretch, I think Eubank can, can get him out of there. Still need to see Eubank's triple G, so do need to see him get through this one. Final I, prediction I just want, decision? I just want you, but I just want uh, Triple G to fucking retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. need it anymore. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for a shot that Eubank does it in the first four. I'm gonna say that he shakes him up and just gets him out on like on the ropes. I think he's gonna be clinging on late, not in the sense that he's nearly stopped, but as we've said, he starts coasting and he does just give people a chance. I'm a bit haunted by like when I thought he was going to batter De Gale and it all just got a bit very messy and I thought that we were really going to see him tested in the Corabrol fight and then that ended in the way that it did and all these years down in Eubank's career I still don't really know how good he is and that's a lot of the appeal for him I know. Um, is Roy Jones in the corner this time around? Yeah, that's the only okay. slight concern I have is if he does start doing his Roy Jones Jr. impression. So just just be Chris Eubank. Don't be try and do that. I think I'd probably prefer that though than him just having no one in his corner and just doing his own thing. He does actually seem to at least respect what Roy Jones says enough that he does listen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you won't listen to him, he won't listen to anyone, will he? So no. Um, do we know if his dad's going to be there? Sorry. Do we know if his dad's going to be there? Not heard anything about that, so I'll assume not. Okay. On to the final sport of the day then, NFL wildcard weekend, super wildcard weekend actually as it's called. (laughs) Who the hell decided that was a thing? (laughs) Um, At the point of you listening to this, it likely will be on Tuesday, but we're recording this before the Cowboys-Bucks game. So just a note there. Run through the games, not going to go through them in the detail that we did the North London derby, but I've got a couple of questions for you on each of them. In the order of play, we'll start with Seahawks 49ers. Worst game of the weekend. <laughs> 41-23. I mean, it has to be just by merit of the scores. 41-23, the 49ers won. Purdy answered another test. We said we were very interested to see how a lot of these quarterbacks dealt with being in the playoffs for the first time. He throws three touchdown passes and runs for a fourth himself. Couldn't really have asked for a better start, could he? No, he really couldn't have, could he? Um, perfect game for him in a way because by halftime, Seattle looked like they were making it close. And it was 17-16 up, weren't they? Yeah, and then the Niners turned it on. Their other players really stepped up and Brock Purdy answered it. He answered, you just said, look, there's some pressure on him here and he looked pretty much fine. He looked composed under fire. So they... And the way they pulled away was scary, wasn't it? It was a it was a statement. Yeah, they 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 won the second half twenty five six. Yeah, I mean, Geno Smith finished twenty five for thirty five, two hundred and fifty three yards, two touchdowns, and one interception. Did he do enough that the Seahawks can feel comfortable bringing him back as their guy next year? I think they will. I think they will. I think they can build around him enough that I think. And let's face it, Pete Carroll has tended to operate on a... There was always a bit of a weird situation where Russell wasn't considering himself as a star quarterback and Pete was trying to run the ball more and, and be more physical. And so 
he probably is going to try and build a team a little bit more like that, where Gino doesn't have to be unbelievable, but can be good enough. And I think he's shown himself to be good enough to do that. Much in the same way what the Niners have built, where you can sort of, you don't want to sort of diminish what Purdy's done, but you can kind of plug in and play. You can go from Trey Lance to Jimmy to him, and there isn't too much of a, a change in how they play. What does this mean for Trey Lance moving forward? <laughs> That's a great question, isn't it? Yeah, if, if the Niners go on the run, we think they will, and Purdy's at the heart of that. What do you do? What do you do with him? Well, they went as far as they did with Jimmy G, and still didn't fancy him, so maybe I'll go the same way. Mm. The thing with Jimmy G was you could you could kind of go, well, you're going to be injured for X amount of time, so... <laughs> We can't rely on you, whereas Trey's going to think, I'm a young quarterback, I need to be the guy. Now, the Chargers-Jags game saved the night in a way that we didn't think it was going to. We thought we were in for a stinger on night, let's face it, didn't we? When the, the first half of that one, we thought, right, this night's been a wash. The ESPN byline here was, the generational quarterback simply delivered a generational comeback. Mm. The number one pick in the 21 draft followed four interceptions with four touchdown passes, one of the most improbable turnarounds in NFL postseason history. He engineers the winning drive, I think a 25-yard run for Travis Etienne on a fourth and one play, gets him right in business, and then the Jags fire a 36-yard field goal in the final play to cap off a 27-point comeback. He said... Uh, I didn't have a choice, he said. These guys have sacrificed way too much for me to be the reason we lose an opportunity. They were talking on the Sky coverage yesterday, and I forget the journalist's name. He spoke about how calm Doug Peterson was in the locker room at halftime. And he says that kind of just ensured that nobody panicked. They just brushed it off and said, right, we know what we got to do. Go out and do it. Yeah, that's the benefit of having a coach with that experience, I guess, isn't it? I you look at it, Trevor Lawrence is going to get the plaudits. And I think, as we said on the night, questionable whether you can once you throw four interceptions. But I guess you react. But I think probably when you look at it, you look at the two coaches and you'd go, Staley, are you good enough for the Chargers? Doug Peterson, I think, has probably got the Jags through that with his experience, his play calling. I think probably does the job for them. Yeah. Why didn't the Chargers run the ball? <laughs> You've got a 27-point lead, and even the newest watcher of the NFL will understand. You can run the ball and run the clock. And maybe they just couldn't comprehend that that would happen. But if one coach has stayed calm in the one end, the other coach is like, they've never coached a game before. No, no. I mean, you've got a few coaches in the NFL who definitely want to be the smartest guy in the room I think he does <laughs> and he I mean was fundamentally just exposed it. and the thing was as soon as the Jags got a couple of scores back you the viewer the fans there watching and I think all players knew this game is only going one direction you could see the Chargers kind of just drowning couldn't you well Jeff spoke last night and he said that it's easy to do in hindsight if you look back at the numbers from the first half, everything the Chargers had was quite literally handed to them. They weren't playing well to be 27 up. 
No, it's true. And so it was just that the Jags then had to make the most of the possessions they did have. And it just so happens that they really did maximize every opportunity because it wasn't only the four interceptions they had. There was another one off someone's helmet, if I'm not mistaken. And there was five turnovers in the first half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So fair play to them. They're not going to be able to do that again in the next round. But if anything, and I think they pointed this out yesterday as well, they can be down 10, 20 in the next game and they're going to say, we've been here before, not a problem. Yeah, yeah, in theory. You haven't got the charges, obviously, this time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The thing that would have been had against Trevor Lawrence was that, okay, you've had this really good breakout season, you still don't have a playoff win. Now he's got that under his belt. The way he's reacted to a disaster in the first half is perfect. And the pressure has been flipped onto the other quarterback, Justin Herbert, where they're going to say, well, you're being talked about in these conversations with the top quarterbacks um, in the league yeah. and you don't have a playoff win. When look at how Lamar Jackson gets cooked, the playoffs are everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dolphins-Bills, a game that we didn't expect to be as good as it was. Josh Allen shrugs off a three-turnover outing and the Bills avoid just a massive, massive collapse by turning it around for a 34-31 victory over the seventh seed in the AFC. An injury-depleted Dolphins, not even like they scrapped it out with a full-strength side. No, and you saw Miami with um, Thompson quarterback against the Jets, and it was just they couldn't get anything going. And I, I appreciate you're going to be more up for this one. You've had another week of training, but yeah. and they were horrible. And the, you know, the Bills, you keep getting told that they're this elite team, that defensively that they're strong, as well as the, the offensive weapons they've gotten. I just I just can't buy it. I just watched them. I'm like, I just don't trust you. You're going to make a mistake no. in the chemos. They nearly gave it them back on a kickoff. It bounced off the guy's chest, not for the first time. <laughs> yeah. And... Yeah, I just I can't trust them. I can't trust even that Josh Allen isn't going to throw a turn, throw um an interception at the minute. He's yeah. As much as I know, he's part of his brand is that he's kind of a bit cavalier. It's some of the ones he's throwing in the minute. I'd, you can't explain. Um, yeah, and it is weird. The commentators do seem to focus on the things he does well. I'm questioning some of the other stuff. I'm putting all of that to the side before Bengals Bills, by the way, because I just need to think that's going to be the greatest game I've ever seen. But well, that can kind of add to hopefully. it. They, they're, they're a fun team is the other thing that they will be fun as long as they're there. So he, he acknowledged that he wasn't at his best. He said, one week seasons, man, that's it. All that matters is surviving and advancing. Doesn't matter how we win is if we win. Now for a game as sloppy as this, we didn't need it to be nearly four hours long. Oh God. <laughs> They get the way they had to obviously push back the other game, and they were like on Sky, they were like, We will get you there, I promise you. There's got to be something they can do to counteract this. Like, you shouldn't need to be waiting that long for a game that really is what 48 minutes long. Yeah, this it is odd, isn't it? I mean. There's breaks and then there's breaks. Yeah, I don't know whether when it gets to a certain stage you have to have some sort of hurry. It's difficult because if one team, in theory at least, if one team had taken timeouts early, then are they going to go, hang on, 
the scene that did it later on would be a disadvantage dear. you're not giving us any time yeah. I, I don't know but there should be some sort of work around to speed things up surely yeah it Allen finished 23 of 39 for 352 yards and three touchdowns. So it doesn't, not bad when you're looking at actually like that, does look good. Yeah. Yeah. Two interceptions, obviously, are the thing we're looking at. Um, Dolphins scored 11 points from those turnovers. The, the Dolphins played tough in a game. I think they were 13 and a half point underdogs with the bookmakers. Tua, don't have Tua. And then, as has happened with a couple of teams in these playoffs, you're not just without your first choice, but you're without your second choice as well. And that's going to be hard to come back from. Yeah. And I, I guess they can go away and tell themselves, well, look, if we had our quarterback starting, then we would have won. I guess is what you would tell yourself. You'd go, well, it, it would have gone better for us. But there's obviously question marks over to the future just in general, isn't there? So that's probably going to dominate their summer. Because that's not a man that throws interceptions. That is a man that is safety first on the ball. Yeah. 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 I, I hope. He's all right to carry on, but I think I read today that he was going to be he was going to return. So yeah, it's, it's I guess how how much he wants to at this point, isn't it? They they question yeah. that. It's a tricky spot. Giants Vikings, the Giants were very confident out of this one. They came in and they beat the tight finish masters at their own game. <laughs> Da- Daniel Jones, where the hell did this come from? I saw an ESPN headline that said Daniel Jones played more like Josh Allen than Josh Allen. Did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Josh Allen's supposed to look like. He he passed for three hundred one yards, two touchdowns, ran for seventy eight yards in his first career playoff game. When you couple that up, right from the first play of the game, Saquon Barkley. He was having a day. Yeah. Two scores, including the tiebreaker midway through the fourth quarter. Daniel Jones became the first quarterback in NFL history to hit 300 plus yards passing, two plus passing touchdowns and 70 plus yards rushing. Like, I think they called it like playground football, the way he was playing. Yeah. Yeah, he's bullying them, wasn't he? He's, uh, and I guess, you know, we all look at him, but he probably is the threat of Saquon there as well. He's such a, it's such a two punch there that the Vikings just can never get a hold of it. Defensively, they're horrible anyway, but they're even worse than I thought. Yeah. I mean, just just grim. But yeah, yeah, they, everything people say about Josh Allen, you would have thought that was what Daniel Jones is. Daniel Jones because yeah. he was unbelievable. They're better than I thought, and he, I, I accept he may not be this good again, but he is better than I thought as well and by the way I one leg of my bet was I got on him on overs rushing yards because the odds were unbelievable they're never happening again (laughs) never getting those again thanks a lot for that now Kirk Cousins went 31 of 39 for 273 yards two scores and a rushing touchdown but the lasting memory unfortunately for him is him throwing short of the marker on a fourth down to close out the game. Just, uh, Kurt's going to Kirk in the, uh, just, (laughs) you you try and, you almost feel bad for the guy. I didn't realise how much evidence there was behind the primetime accusations until I really saw the numbers last night. (laughs) Um, 
Ravens Bengals, the game that was the late one for us. Mm. And I think both of us said, I'm not sure I'm staying up for that one. No Lamar Jackson, Bengals are bangling. Facing third and goal at the one with about 12 minutes left, Huntley tries to go over the top of the line for the go ahead score. He stood up by Jermaine Pratt, stripped by Logan Wilson. And one of the great sights to see in NFL is a, is a big man running with the ball. <laughs> Hubbard gets the ball at the two and he's helped along by a number of teammates to rush for the longest fumble return for a touchdown in NFL postseason history. It was also the longest go-ahead touchdown in the fourth quarter in the postseason. What the hell happened? This is like... <laughs> from the brink of going ahead and possibly stealing the game. So it's just all gone horribly wrong. Yeah, fine margins. And probably one of those things that if the Bengals do have success, that won't get remembered. And it wasn't, you know, they would have been under the cosh at this point. They've got a weird sort of rivalry with the Ravens. Um, there is clearly a fair bit of needle there. Um, and they, I was looking at the stats before the game. They have... Even when beating them, it's been narrow. They've struggled a little bit. Um, so I thought this might be a trickier game than maybe we anticipated, but with the Bengals getting through, probably even trickier than I probably would have thought there. Um, but I guess they got it done, didn't they? The the big thing that came out of it for me is they were able to confirm afterwards, I think it was 0.4 yards short of getting over the goal line. And they were able to record that by a chip in the football. Why the hell are we waiting for them to get markers and things out if there's been a chip in the football the entire time? <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, it does seem pretty crazy, doesn't it? The uh, then, like, still the um, and maybe that's a good thing of respecting officials, or whatever. But the way they do de- defer to the officials for like judgment calls is crazy compared to you know the way we're up in arms for things over in football over here. Some of the decisions. What was the one where? They marked it for a first down. I was like, I'm not sure that is. And they just didn't question it. And it led to a touchdown. That was in the Giants game. Yeah. I was like, like, oh, well, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But oh, wow. What do you mean, oh, wow? This might be the season. Bizarre. Bills Bengals is is eight o'clock on Sunday, by the way. That's lovely. (sighs) What a treat. Eagles Giants is um, quarter past one on Saturday night. I saw uh, an ex official, I think it was, say, who planned this when they decided to give the Philly crowd around 12 hours of drinking <laughs> before they get into the stadium here? We'd be having that a uh, 12.30 kickoff over here. Yeah, hope, I mean, hopefully it's an early finish in the boxing because Chiefs-Jags is 9.30. Is it all? That's all, couldn't it? Yeah, get one up on the laptop. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll know the final picture when the game is played tonight. We gave our predictions on that last week, so we'll be coming on here next week talking about what the final four, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, a lot's been done here. I don't really need all our predictions because I mean, we've been on for about two and a bit, two and a quarter hours, so I don't know how much more people want to listen <laughs> to us, but given our predictions for the winners so you can work it out from there 
Thank you again for listening to another edition of the Spitballing Pod. Movie Madness this week, I'll say again, hopefully it'll be out Friday. We're having some issues with the people we're recording this with, so don't shoot the messenger in all this. Captain Phillips against King of New York. We're running that one back. Didn't get to do it last time. Keenan was ill. So that'll be the pick for Friday. See you there. Adios. <laughs>